Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. Welcome to our Good Friday Sermon Podcast. Today, we will be reflecting on the death of Jesus Christ and the significance of His sacrifice. Jesus demonstrated true humility and love. In this, we can take up our own metaphorical crosses and look to His example and how we should live our lives. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. Tonight, I want to take a bit of a journey to the cross, as many say around this time of year. And we're going to begin tonight in a little different place than we do. We're going to actually, before the message that I give, we're going to partake of communion together. Just like the disciples did as they took of the Last Supper. And then Jesus left the upper room and headed to the Mount of Olives and into Gethsemane, and then the arrest and the betrayal, and, and into the trials, and then eventually to the cross. And so tonight, just very simply, we're going to begin there. We're going to begin at the Lord's Supper, the communion table as we call it. I'm going to read here in a moment from Luke 22. We're going to be reading about the time when the disciples and Jesus came to the upper room and they took of the Passover together. They were making preparations for it. It was a time when the people would gather together and they would remember, which is what we do when we come to the table, we remember, do this in remembrance of me. The disciples and and Jesus would have remembered the exodus, the time when God rescued his people from Egypt. He redeemed them out of a land of slavery and he gave them new life, new identity, made them a nation. He led them. And it's in that moment where they remembered that the angel passed over this Passover time when they were to take a lamb and to slay that lamb and to put its blood over the doorposts. And as that blood would represent the future lamb of God who would die for us whose life would take away our sins. We see in that moment of the exodus, we see this great miracle with all the plagues that led up to it and the Passover Seder, which is often celebrated even by many of us today as we would get together or a family. I was talking with friends, some of you may have participated in a Seder meal where we remember in similar ways the elements of a Passover meal and all that it draws out and and brings to mind. And so they would have prepared these elements together. They would have practiced these things. They would have recited uh, words from the Torah of, of different sections from the Old Testament that would have reminded them of the story that had happened, the exodus, the salvation and the redemption of the people of God. And it's in that moment that Jesus took the Passover meal and he made it something more. He said, take of this bread and drink of this cup and do this in remembrance of me. And then thousands of years later, 2,000 years later, we are still following in that way. And so let me read from Luke 22, verse 7. It says, then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare a Passover for us that we may eat of it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? 
He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house that the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Verse 14 says, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And you can imagine they have no idea what is coming. Verse 16, And for I tell you, uh, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup is poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. And behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table, and the Son of Man goes as it is determined, but woe to the man whom he has betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it was going to do this. And we'll pause there. But it's in this setting that I want us to come to the table tonight. It's in that reminder that we begin here in this place, yes, knowing the whole story, but we try to put ourselves in that place. And as Josh said earlier, yet we do know much of the story for we come tonight to the table, not mourning over the table, but rejoicing for what it represents, the gospel message of grace for you and I, that Jesus' body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us, his life was given for you, and we get to join together as one family, the family of God, the church, joining together of a family meal, communing with the presence of God among us. That's an extraordinary, significant thing. That's a powerful moment. So let me pray before we come to the table. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. We thank you, God, that you have directed all of these things to take place. Yet we think back so far back in time as we look back and we think of all that you went through, the agony that you endured on a night like tonight. And God, we come in tonight trying to remember those days, remember those moments, and yet we are so grateful. The the cross, Lord, and we stand, we kneel before it, humbled. Thank you, God, for your gospel message and for your grace. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. So at Hope Fellowship Church, we know there are many visitors here tonight, possibly, and we ask that you would join us in, in communion. And so we'd ask that you'd stand with me. The elders and deacons are going to come forward and we're going to dispense the elements to you. Please stand to partake in communion. And it's a time when we come together. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you trust in him, we ask that you would partake with us tonight.
And in the quietness of the moment, we just allow ourselves to pause for a moment to think, to reflect upon Good Friday and it's what it means. How could this day be good? Consider the Passover lamb, the unleavened bread that's been given, the life that we have in Christ. word says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we remember you. We remember that night. Remember tonight what you have endured. Thank you, God, for giving your life for us, laying down your life for your friends. Thank you, God, for your forgiveness, for your grace and your mercy upon us. Thank you for new life, for joy and for happiness and a future that is laid before us, an inheritance that is preserved for us. God, thank you for relationship that we enjoy, for the fellowship of the saints here in this place, this church. Thank you for these people. Bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We just partook of the Lord's Supper. Jesus had just taken his last supper. And it's from Luke that we go over to the book of Mark. And actually, before we get to Mark, I'm going to stop by in John, John 17. For it's in tonight this sense of following Jesus' footsteps to the cross, where tonight I, I don't want to so much preach to you as I want to just present the scripture to you tonight. We'll be reading a portion of scripture here and there from John and Mark. We just read from Luke and we're going to be presenting tonight just the simple aspect of what it is that Jesus went through. What it is, is it that he endured? The agony of the cross. 
On Sunday, we looked at the sounds of Palm Sunday, where we looked at and we discussed what it is that we hear on Palm Sunday. How is it that these, these sounds that we hear, the donkey of such, the crowds crying out, Hosanna, tonight I want us to feel, I want us to sense, and so in some ways tonight is the emotions of Good Friday, that we wish pause in our busy schedules for tonight for a few moments to simply feel what it is that Jesus felt, impossible as that is. And yet for, our, for a moment to, to allow ourselves to, to go through what he's going through and, and beginning with this, as he's taken his last supper, as he knows Judas has left, he's, Judas is readying the betrayal. He, he leaves the upper room and they exit the city and they head up to the Mount of Olives on the opposite side of the city. And as Jesus is walking, he's in discussion with the disciples. In fact, he has some final last words and some teachings that he gives them. But we have then, as he is on the way to the Mount of Olives and then to Gethsemane, we don't know the exact place, but we have in John 17, the longest prayer recorded from Jesus. There's no other place in the Bible where we get this incredibly uh, detailed prayer written out that we experience. And over the last six weeks as a church, we've been going through the Lord's Prayer where the disciples said, teach us to pray, for they were so very often with him while he was praying. And, and he will then again pray in Gethsemane and the disciples will be there. He will also remind them to keep watch and pray with me, but they fall asleep three times, right? And I'll help, I hope you won't do that tonight with me, right? But, but this, this sense of the high priestly prayer in John 17, I want us to read it through. Now, I will admit, as I read through this prayer, there are times when the language and the words and the, and the way that it's being communicated is often difficult for us to grasp and, and wrap our minds around. For Jesus is praying to the Father, and it's in this mysterious union of the Trinity that we have language where Jesus prays for himself in the third person and yet often then he prays for himself personally. Then he'll often pray directly to the Father. He then prays for the disciples that he has there with him. And then he prays for you and for me. And I want us to just examine these words before we go to the final steps from here to Gethsemane and then to the cross. In John 17 verse 1, it says this, these are the, the prayers, the prayer of Jesus here as he's praying before this last hours that he has. And it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here in the beginning, Jesus prays for himself, that he would be glorified, and that by glorifying Jesus, that God the Father would be glorified among the world. That, that this aspect, this relationship between the Trinity here is incredible. It's, it's one of these, these areas where it's like tapping into this is, is truly amazing. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. You have given, get this, you have given Jesus the, all authority over all flesh. And through Jesus, he has the authority to give eternal life, it says in verse two, 
to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and that this eternal life, that they would know you. What is eternal life? That they would know God. And how is it that we know God? We know God through Jesus, the one that he has been sent. This incredible aspect of knowing Jesus, seeing the face of God through the person of Jesus Christ, and thereby finding eternal life. And so, He begins by praying and knowing what he's going to go through. Verse four, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Can you imagine the relationship between the Father and the Son? Discussing the relationship that they've had since before the world existed. Now in this place as they find... (laughs) This incredible agony that he's going to head into. Verse six, I have manifested your name to the people, meaning I have made the name of God. I have presented it. I have revealed it to the people whom you gave me out of the world, it says. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. Verse eight, for I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and they come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Again, it's hard to follow sometimes, at least for me, as I'm reading through, as, I, as I'm trying to follow Jesus speaking to the Father as he speaks about himself and he speaks about the Father, of all that the Father has given him. And we'll know in a few moments, he's gonna be praying in the Gethsemane, Lord, if it is possible, Take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done, right? And here he's in this relationship with the Father and this, this unity that is so in tune to one another that we, we recognize the, the beauty of his statements of, of presenting himself as a sacrifice so that the world would, be, would know the glory of God through Jesus. It's incredible. And so then we get to this incredible verse. Look at verse nine. Verse nine says, I am praying for them. Love this. Who, who is the them? He says, I am praying for them. I am praying for them, the disciples. The disciples that are among him, he is specifically praying for them. He knows what they're gonna go through, the fear that they're gonna be facing here in a moment. He knows that they're going to be challenged and persecuted. Many of them will be martyred in a few years. He knows what's ahead of them. And he specifically takes this time as he is heading to the Mount of Olives and to Gethsemane and he knows what is coming. He is in a place where he says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the whole world, he says, but for those whom you have given me, these disciples, for they are yours. Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Verse 11, and I, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Do you get that? Keep them in your name. I'm praying for them. I'm praying that you would keep them in your name. You would protect them, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. This unity that is presented, you'll see be pulled out here in a moment. So he's praying for the disciples. His heart is for them. He recognizes what they're gonna be going through, and he, he, he sympathizes with them, and he prays to the Father that he would keep them, protect them. While I was with them, verse 12, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction. Who is that? It's Judas. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 13, but now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, 
and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Does that sound familiar? What is the Lord's Prayer that we have been reading and praying and reciting? Lead them not into temptation, but deliver them from evil. Some translations would even say, deliver them from the evil one. And as we pray, Jesus prays that. Deliver us from evil and the evil one. Here, keep them from the evil one. Protect them, for they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, he says. And as you sent them into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. He's saying, Lord, would you bathe them in truth? Would you make them a holy through your truth? Would your word so I- I- infused into their lives that it would, be, it, would, it would sanctify them with the word of God, your word, which is truth? Would they not follow the father of lives, lies, but would they follow the one who gives them the truth? Then verse 20, and this is the verse that even we were talking about it the other night. Someone had mentioned it. It's so powerful for it, It resonates from this prayer 2,000 years ago. It resonates down through the generations to you and me. In verse 20 it says, I do not ask for these only, these disciples that are among me. What does he say? "But But also for those who will believe in me through their word. He says, I do not ask for these only, verse 20, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I'm not praying just for these disciples, but for the disciples that will come who believe in the words of the disciples, the eyewitness accounts of the disciples that are given to us here from John, the word of God that is presented to us, that has come to us, for faith comes by hearing. And we have heard the word of God, and we have believed. And so it is in believing that we resonate with this verse. It rings into our lives and reverberates into us as Jesus was praying for me. To consider the fact that he had his disciples on his mind before he went to the cross. And he had you and me, the many millions and numerous disciples that were to come after him throughout the generations stemming from that moment on to 2023. He's praying for those who would believe in him through their word. And then verse 21, but yet what is it that he prays for us for? He prays for you and for me, but what is it that he prays for? Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as the Father, uh, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, and they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you have loved me. Do you understand that? He is praying for unity, that we may be one. What an incredible statement. As he has just gotten done praying that we would be sanctified, the disciples would be sanctified in the truth, and that the word of God would be infused into their lives, that the truth would be be sanctifying them. And from those words of those disciples, that we then would come to believe the truth, and walk in the light. 
And as we do, that, that this unity around the truth of God's word and who he is, that the unity around Jesus Christ, the unity around the table would be so present among his church that the world would know that God loves his church because the unity that he finds here in this place. That's an incredible prayer. <laughs> That's an incredible desire. And it should spur us on. As Hebrews says, it stirs us up to gather together to come together, to be unified, to put aside our differences and to join together in the cause of Christ, presenting the gospel message of transformation and redemption and reconciliation. All of that is represented by the cross of Jesus Christ. We find unity at the cross. We find unity because Jesus prayed for unity for the church. Father, that he would keep him, that he would hold them, that the Father would protect him, uh, protect us, and that the Father would unify us through Jesus Christ. Jesus prays for us. He prays for unity. That's an amazing prayer. But then he, he goes on from there. And that's when we go to Mark chapter 14. I'm just going to read some verses from the book of Mark as we kind of draw to the next stage here. Mark 14, verse 32 You'll notice back in verse 26, it says that when they had sung a hymn, Josh had mentioned that at the beginning, they then went out to the Mount of Olives. And so as they're walking to the Mount of Olives, he pauses and prays the high priestly prayer. Then they get to this place in verse 32. It says, and when, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, this is verse 32 of Mark 14, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remember here and watch. And going a little farther, he, he fell on the ground and prayed that if, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Again, does that sound familiar? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. If Jesus was willing to say the Father's will be done, then so ought, so, and so should we. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And said to Peter, Simon, why are you asleep? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Yet the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We get tired, <laughs> do we not? We fall asleep. And even the disciples in this moment, they could not possibly recognize the magnitude of the situation. In verse 39, and again, he went away and prayed and this, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came for the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We see in this place, the Gethsemane. I had the opportunity a few years ago to travel to Gethsemane, to see these olive trees that have been there for thousands of years, some of them. And in this place, this garden of sorts, it is only possible for us to try to imagine what it would have been like back then. 
But as they enter this place, many believe it was a walled garden of sorts. So the passages in the Gospels often describe him entering the garden. And it was a place where these olive groves would have been. They visited there often to pray and to get alone. Probably in some ways because it was protected. A place where they could find privacy and get away from the crowds and the watching eyes. And so now at this place, maybe not very much unlike many of the other times that they had been there. And the disciples are unsure of what's going on. But he comes into this place and he is earnestly praying. Luke describes in this place that Jesus begins to perspire blood. There's a term for this, a medical term, as the sweat is mixed with blood under great aspects of pressure and stress and agony. It is in this time where it is as if the world and the weight of the world is pressing down upon Jesus. For Gethsemane means press of oils. No doubt among that olive grove, there was an olive press where they would have pressed down the oils and made, uh, and made olive oil from that. And so it's in that press, in that pressure where the olive oil comes, this oil comes oozing out that it is as if the very pressure upon Jesus' life was oozing out his blood before one day, man, before the next day, the man would take and rip open his skin and blood would come pouring from him. It's in this moment where the pressure is pushing down, the press of oils, Gethsemane. Remove this cup from me. And yet, what is he in agony over? Why is he actually asking for this cup to be removed? Is he not ready to take on? What what is going on here? I've always thought through this. As he is in this moment and he feels this deep emotion, and if there is any other way, yet Whatever way you desire, Father, I will go. I I found this quote a few years ago from Edersheim. He's a Jewish historian, and he writes these words many years ago, speaking about this situation and this phrase of what it is that he was sorrowful about, even to death, it says. So if you would bear with me as I read this, just try to think through. It says, what? But what we may reverently ask was the cause of this sorrow unto death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why was it that he was so sorrowful unto death in this moment? What was it? Not fear, either of bodily or mental suffering, but of death. Man's nature, you and I, created of God immortal, this shrinks from the dissolution of the bond that binds body to soul. Yet to fallen man, death is not by any means fully death, for he was born with the taste of it in his soul, but not so for Christ. It was the unfallen man dying. It was he who had no experience of it, tasting death, and that not for himself, but for every man, as the word says, emptying the cup to its bitter dregs. It was the Christ undergoing death by man and for man, the incarnate God, the God-man, submitting himself vicariously to the deepest humiliation and paying the utmost penalty, death, all death. No one, as he could know what death was, no one could taste its bitterness as he is going into death was his final conflict with Satan for man and on his behalf. By submitting to it, he took away the power of death. He disarmed death by burying the shaft in his very own heart. And beyond this lies the deep and unutterable mystery of Christ, bearing the penalty due to our sin. 
bearing our death, bearing the penalty of the broken law, the accumulated guilt of humanity and the holy wrath of the righteous judge was upon him. Wow. He took and buried the shaft into his own heart, taking that as a sacrifice for humanity. And yet it's in this moment of extreme agony, as Luke describes in his, I believe it is, or it's Matthew, I believe it's Luke, where he describes the agony that he endures, this incredible pain that he goes through. This word agony is not really used anywhere else in the New Testament. And we find this agonia that he endures, this extreme emotional travail, extraordinary pain emotionally he feels in this moment, yet also to experience great torture and crucifixion, the pain of scourging and the flogging that would be to come. And yet the pain that he would feel in this next moment is something that maybe you and I have experienced in a small way, the betrayal. Someone who has spent years with him He's befriended, he's taught, he's discipled, he's fed, he's broken the bread and he's given it to him. And Judas would come and arrive in this very moment. Read with me, Mark 14, verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve with the crowd with swords and clubs and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he had came, he went up with him at once and said, Rabbi, And he kissed him and laid hands on him and seized him. And one who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. In that moment, we're not sure, but... In this passage, it just says a man struck off his ear, but we find out in the book of John that it was actually Peter. And yet there's a one, uh, this next verse, verse 51 and 52, is found only in Mark. Many people believe this man that's mentioned in verses 51 and 52, almost a somewhat comical uh, verse, seems to be something standing out that only Mark would have known. And so it says in verse 51, right after that, it says, a young man followed him with nothing, with wearing nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What a strange verse there, right in the middle of this emotional story. And why would it be have put in there? Why would, who would have known about that but Mark? So many believe they put it right in there. And yet I find it fascinating, for we find in this story uh, both the garden to the garden For in the very beginning, we see this betrayal that takes place, this rebellion that happens. We see fear take place, and we see running and fleeing in nakedness. Adam and Eve, of course, the garden and all that occurred there, the tree of sorts, the olive trees, then here in Gethsemane, we find Jesus, the Son of Man, the betrayal that takes place, the lies and the deception that is being told by the Judas, the Satan-like figure the deception and the betrayal, and then we have running away in fear and nakedness. We find such similarity between Genesis 3 and this situation here as they're giving us signs back. And in this betrayal, in this arrest, we don't get this violent upheaval, this violent uprising and the sword being taken out and fighting off, but no, rather we have submission, we have humility, We have quietness and silence as the lamb goes to the slaughter. And then we come to Mark 15. And again, I 
simply want to take time for these last closing minutes. I just want to simply take time to read through some of this chapter of Mark 15. Because it's important for us to read it through, to sit under the scripture as it is read before us and to feel tonight, to consider what it is that Jesus has gone through and what it is that he endured and the love that poured out from him for you and for me. So it says in Mark 15, verse 1, it says, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consolation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. The chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they're bringing against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Verse 6, and the feast he used to release them, one prisoner for them they asked. And among, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate as, as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Verse 11, and the chief priests, as you can see them working among the crowd to get the crowd riled up in their direction, the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, what shall I do with the man that you call king of the Jews? If you want Barabbas. They cried out again, crucify him. Pilate said to him, why? What evil has he done? They kept shouting all the more, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. Verse 16, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called him together, the whole battalion, and clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews, in mockery. And they began striking him on the head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling it down in homage to him, mocking him in any way possible. And when they had mocked him, they had stripped him of his purple cloak, they had put a clothes on him, they led him out to crucify him. Verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews, and with him crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads at him, saying, ah, and you who said that you could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest and the scribe had their turn, right? They mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he can't even save himself. Let Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and that we may believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33 says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness. You can imagine the 
This is not the time for darkness in the day. And yet utter darkness fills the whole land until the ninth hour. And then verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemai sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quote from the verse of Psalm 22. I was talking with a few people about this passage earlier where we, we know of that beginning of Psalm 22. I think my father-in-law was even mentioning this the other day. Is it possible that Jesus potentially would have had in his mind or had sung or had quoted maybe longer, more of that whole passage of Psalm 22? Psalm 22, one says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes that on the cross. Why are you so far from saving me, the words of my groaning? Oh God, my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. You are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel's. And yet I love this, because in verse four it says, And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. Even in that moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, is it possible he got to verse 4 and he thought, yet you delivered them, you will deliver me. To you they cried, and they were rescued. For he will be, in a short time, rescued, risen, powerful, resurrected Lord. And so he reads, and he goes on, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it for him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom when the centurion who stood facing him saw that it was in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, This man was the son of God. And there were also women looking from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, uh, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there they were also many other women who came up to Jerusalem. And then finally, the final burial here, it says in verse 42, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, That is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took courage. I love that phrase. He took courage. Took courage to do what he did. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should already have died for Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned that the centurion said that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the the entrance of the tomb Then Mary and Magdalene, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And it's with that that we pause. We come to this moment where we the emotions of Good Friday as we put ourselves potentially in the crowd. We put ourselves maybe in the eyes of Mary, maybe his mother who looked up at the cross. We put ourselves in maybe the Simon who's trying to carry the cross or the others who are running in fear or too afraid to even be there. Or maybe it's Joseph who's getting up that courage to go up to Pilate and ask something that goes against the grain of all the other people in authority in that time and to take care and take care of Jesus' body. 
It's in that moment that we, we allow ourselves to feel, and I think that's okay, to feel what it is that this emotes into our lives. That it strengthens our faith, knowing what Jesus endured, knowing the, the pain and the agony he went through. And yet even that, enduring the agony of the cross, he did that for you and for me because of the love that he had for the world. That he came for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Right? Not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's an amazing message. And so we're going to be closing the service in maybe a little bit of a different way. I'm going to close in prayer, and the worship team's going to come up, and they're going to lead us in a special song, a song that I would ask you wouldn't sing to. Just stay seated where you are, and simply come, and simply allow yourself to reflect on all that we just read, to reflect on the gospel message on Good Friday, the crucifixion, the betrayal, the Lord's Supper, all the elements that is presented before us tonight. Reflect on your faith in Jesus, your love for him, what he has done for you. And where we're headed, Easter Sunday. And then after that final song, I'll close with a final prayer. So the worship team can come as I pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We praise you, God, for your sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We do not take this lightly tonight. We consider the beauty of all that we see and witness because God, it is your beautiful Savior, wonderful, merciful Savior who has come to die for us. This Passover of sorts that our lives, that we could come into the presence of a holy God because of Jesus Christ and the atoning blood of the cross. Thank you, God, for your vicarious sacrifice. Thank you, God, for your love. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Help us to reflect. Help us to feel tonight all it is that you, all it is that you have done for us. We praise you, God, for these good things. In Jesus' name.